Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 12.80 The Zone. Utah Jazz are back in action tonight. They're playing the Boston Celtics. Both teams are going to be shorthanded. We're going to get to that coming up, but Mike Conley is out for the Jazz. And then we've got guys uh, out. Marcus Smart is out. And we got some other guys questionable. Uh, we'll have to see how this goes for the Celtics. Uh, the Lakers played last night. Lakers escaped. They were without Anthony Davis, some kind of Achilles issue. So he's sitting on the sideline. And uh, <laughs> they just mess around. And then they turn it on to the end of the game and get to overtime. Okay, there was a foul. They shouldn't have committed there at the end. And Shea Gilgis, Alexander hit three free throws to send it to overtime. But then the Lakers dominate 9-2 in overtime. And they get out of there with the win. So they're a half game behind the Jazz now. All right, we have more coming up on the BYU-Gonzaga game as uh, BYU loses by 11 at home to Gonzaga. We'll hear from Mark Pope coming up later in the hour. You realize that's the closest game Gonzaga's had in the West Coast Conference this year. And that is the second, tied for the second closest game they played all season. Zags are really good. All right. Uh, for those of you who missed it, we had, uh, had Lincoln Kennedy on, Raider analyst, former Washington Husky star, former Raider player, and also a Pac-12 network analyst. Had him on to put a wrap on the NFL season and the Super Bowl. Here is Lincoln. Lincoln, good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you today? Good. I assume you watch the Super Bowl differently. While everybody else is staring at the quarterbacks, I assume you are staring at the offensive and defensive line play, and I bet you were horrified watching Kansas City's offensive line scramble to protect their quarterback. Well, you know what? For for what it's worth, during this run with Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes, one of the, if if there was a weakness in the offense, it was considered the consistency on the offensive line. Now they were able to make do and and be able to make plays, obviously, to win the Super Bowl last year. But last night they were exploited, and and I, I guess what I was surprised mostly as that is that during the time when the, the Chiefs have struggled, we've seen Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy and, and this offense be able to make adjustments. Um, but they they couldn't, and so you tip your hat to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers because for one, you know Todd Bowles is notoriously known as a blitzing defensive coordinator. I think they ran blitzes probably maybe four or five times last night. Everything else was just rushing four and played coverage. So there's a couple of things that we take away from the game. Not only was it a, a royal drubbing, uh, but for the most part, going forward, the Chiefs are going to be good offensively. Uh, and they're going to be, they're still going to be good, in the, you know, for years to come. But you might have seen sort of a formula to maybe negate some of their offensive output and maybe slow that down, slow down that offense a little bit. It seemed like when you have Tom Brady, obviously you're going to get the majority of the attention is going to be focused on that side of the ball. But from the start of the season till now, the defense of Tampa Bay really, really came on, and these guys looking at them in the playoffs played well and to me you know the offensive line of KC obviously is an issue but I thought the bigger issue was the success of the defense for Tampa Bay whether it's Bowles and obviously David and White and whoever Sue and Barrett all these guys all look like they were at the best at the time they needed to be could you respond to that I, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I think what you've seen, especially out of this defense, this defense played with an attitude where it rose to the occasion, almost like it was tired of everybody just focusing on the offensive firepower. They wanted to be claimed and they wanted to, uh, to hear their name uh, and, and do some things. The defense is playing with a, an attitude. And I noticed it the first time in the playoffs when they played against New Orleans, the way they just they just seemed you know, ornery. They were going to take what they were going to take and you weren't going to have their way around. And they rolled that throughout the the playoffs 
yeah, when you have one of the greatest quarterbacks in history playing on your football team, he's going to get all the credit. And I've always thought about, you know, quarterbacks get way too much credit uh, and, 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 you know, when things go right and way too much blame when things go wrong. Uh, but he's going to get all the credit. But this defense played the way they were supposed to, and they really harassed Patrick Mahomes in this offense last night. Having said that, the difference in the game, I mean, both teams, you know, crossing midfield, having chances to score. Well, the Bucks had a half dozen good opportunities, and they got four touchdowns, kicked a field goal. They did get stuffed at the one-yard line on a goal line stand that no one will remember. Uh, and then for the, the Chiefs, they have two passes to the goal line, hit receivers in the face, and I thought they were incredible throws by Mahomes across his body, off the wrong foot, rolling left, throwing right, that stuff, and then kind of the submarine delivery to the goal line. I mean, have we really seen a quarterback do this? I know other guys have had incredible arms and other guys have been scramblers, but this, I mean, those two were just unbelievable. You're absolutely right, but we've seen him do these things before, and that's what makes him so great. Uh, The fact is that because it's a total team game, those receivers have to catch those balls. You know, if if you know those two passes that you're referring to were caught, especially the one that was down on the goal line, which hit the you know the would-be receiver right in the face mask, if that was caught, we might be having sort of a different outcome or talking about a different outcome in this game. Not to say that it, it, you know it might have been a little bit more of a shootout than it seemed to be one-sided, but the fact that the Kansas City Chiefs, who have been good during their run over the last couple of years of scoring touchdowns and making their offense one of their better defenses, the best defenses by putting pressure on opposing teams, they couldn't do that last night. And the field goals, just to get some points on the board, didn't slow the momentum of the Buccaneers. Conversely, it put more pressure on the Chiefs' offense to try to make plays, and Tampa Bay was right there waiting for it, right there waiting, knowing what you're going to do. So they doubled Tyreek Hill. They doubled Travis Kelsey. They were able to rush four and drop seven and play combo coverages on the back and not get beat deep. And there were other players on the Chiefs team that just did not make plays. So I'm not sure if they got a little full of themselves. They didn't want to show up. What happened? But Patrick Mahomes can't throw to himself and catch everything and do everything himself. He, he tried to do as best he could. So as the analyst for the Raiders, you had the opportunity to see the Chiefs up close twice, including a one time when the Raiders actually won. I believe it was in KC. So as I analyze the Chiefs in relationship to the AFC West, you get the Raiders... You know, they a little bit of improvement. Expect to see some more Herbert over there with the Chargers and all that. Do you see the Chiefs capable of putting together a Patriots-like run? What I mean by that, I'm just talking about how the Patriots dominated the AFC East for so long. I'm not necessarily talking about winning Super Bowls. I'm talking about winning the division year after year. The Chiefs will be good. They'll they'll be competitive. The difference to me is I think the AFC West, as compared to the AFC East, where the where the Patriots dominated, is getting progressively better. We didn't see, you know, when 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 Brady and the Patriots had their run, you saw you know teams like the Jets, the Dolphins try to make strides, but they were never able to get over the hump and challenge the Patriots. And that's one of the things that was lacking for hard to believe, but it was two decades. Other teams just couldn't get it right. I think there's a little bit of difference in the AFC West. I think when you talk about the Chargers having a quarterback, Justin Herbert, they're going to find a way to, to be competitive. I think the Raiders are still going to be competitive, and they're going to challenge the Chiefs. The Chiefs have a, have a big problem. They, they committed so much to their quarterback, and rightfully so, that they have to address that offensive line. Um, and what it looks like right now, Eric Fisher, their, their franchise left tackle, is going to miss all of next season. 
Um, and he probably is going to count significantly against the cap. And what I mean by that is anywhere from up to 13 to $15 million. That's a big thing when you talk about having to get this offensive line better. You might not have as much resources as you think, and that might be the difference. The Patriots didn't really have to worry about that problem because they had a way of controlling the overhead and everything. The Chiefs are going to be a little bit different because the resources they paid out to Patrick Mahomes is going to probably affect them on some other end. I think this, I'm not saying that they're not going to be good or they're going to fall off the top, but they're going to be challenged in different ways because they're not going to be able to hold it together as well as the Patriots did back in the day. So are you hearing any, uh, any good dirt in NFL circles as far as Deshaun Watson? How far is he going to push this? And how much is, are things going to settle down in Houston? And he'll be upset, but he'll stay? Or, or these two are going to go to the mat, and he's going to try to get out of there, and they're going to try to keep him, and it's just going to go on? I think what's going to have to happen is you've got to sort of you got to court Deshaun Watson as though you're in college and you're trying to recruit him because he has a say so and, and that no trade clause. So there are still teams that are lobbying for you know position to try to figure out a deal. But um, the first thing that's going to happen and we're going to see in the next couple of days is where Carson Wentz is going to go, and I think you'll take a couple of teams out of that once they figure that out. I don't know if if. If I was a general manager, say, if I was a general manager, Mike Mayock and the Raiders, I would make a push to get Deshaun Watson. I know a lot of Raider fans probably don't want to hear it, but I, I think he's a proven winner that'll probably put you over the top. More importantly, he's a guy that can, can extend the play with his legs, and I think that's critical in today's game. Uh, with that being said, I don't know how far the Raiders want to give, how much they want to give up, um, but the mindset that the Rams took when they traded Jared Goff to the Detroit Lions and what they gave to get a quarterback so they can win now should be the overwhelming mindset of a lot of teams in the National Football League. Stop trying to worry about building for the future. If you have the ability to win now, make a play for a valuable player and make it happen. As we look at the NFL going forward, obviously it's a pass-driven league now with all the rule changes and all that. Uh, but you see teams like Baltimore and Tennessee who try to do it with the run. Is that, is that possible to have the high level of success if you're more run-oriented run versus passing? Yes, it is possible. Good old-fashioned football still wins, in my opinion. They run in the ball and play in defense. However, the big part is playing defense. You can't – if you're a running football team like the Baltimore Ravens and Tennessee Titans – you and especially in the AFC, you can't afford to allow a team like the Kansas City Chiefs to jump ahead of you by two touchdowns and think that you're going to be able to stay in it. So you have to play ball control, and more importantly, you have to score touchdowns. When it comes down, especially in the AFC, when you look at it for the future, whether it's Buffalo or you know Tennessee or Baltimore, they're going to have to score touchdowns to keep pace with these high-power offenses. Running the ball and controlling the clock doesn't mean anything when you have a, a capable offense that can go down and score in a couple of plays. Big play threat. So, yes, the the future is still, uh, you know, with the, the passing league and the ability, these quarterbacks to, to do things like Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes, so on and so forth. But it's still going to come down to good old-fashioned football. you got to be able to run the ball. Hey, are you surprised that Alabama can lose 15 people, a combination of assistant coaches and analysts? That kind of turnover doesn't seem to bug Saban at all. He just, I, I assume he just gets a flurry of resumes and phone calls and there's just a line of people trying to get in the door. But it still seems like that kind of turnover, but nothing impacts him, even that kind of turnover. Yeah, you know, one, one thing that you can take in, in, in South when it comes to Alabama is that 
we already know they've got blue chippers sitting on the fence, on the on the bench. They've got you know top 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 recruits waiting for their chance to go in because you know their recruiting tool is that your your kid will be in the National Football League in the next three years. Uh, the, the same thing goes for a lot of the coaches. It's a stepping stone. Um, I'm not surprised. I I am surprised that the rest, like the SEC, for example, just can't catch up. Whatever Alabama is doing, if you could try to put together a good class, we saw what LSU did, you know, a year back when they ran, won the national championship. But other than that, they, they weren't able to, to, to keep it going. There has not been any consistency, especially for that the rest of that division. Yes, Florida's in the conversation. Georgia's in the conversation. But none to the extent of Alabama. And to me, you know, it's kind of unfortunate that every year we're going to talk about the same, well, for, me, for at least immediate future, we're going to talk about the same top college football teams. Ohio State, Clemson, and Alabama. There's got to be more parity in this country than just those three teams. But those are going to be the reflection because those are the ones that are on top. And no one else is really close to, 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 to dethroning them. Now, we'll see how the Pac-12 does next year when, you know, Oregon and Washington have to take on Ohio State. It's a way to get some recognition, but you got to win those football games. And in the past, the Pac-12 hasn't been able to do it. No, it's kind of boring when it comes to that, seeing the same two or three teams in there. Very boring. <laughs> I mean, I love college football, but then right at the end, it's like uh, you're going to see this great movie, and then the last uh, couple of scenes, eh, that sucked. Yeah. I just can't I can't get into it. I did want to ask you one other question about uh, the uh-huh. Bucks, though. Yeah. We, we keep hearing that uh, – the players, even going back to Arizona, love to play for Bruce Bruce Arians. What does that right. mean? It means, you know, every coach I've ever played for, and trust me, my league, especially in the National Football League, I had a lot of different coaches. Every coach had the same theme opening day. Buy into what we're selling. Buy into our program. You know, devout yourself to what we believe in in our way and we're going to try to take you to the promised land and Bruce Arians is no different the the fact that he allowed Tom Brady to come to the team well one thing that they got him but the fact he allowed to bring somebody like an Antonio Brown some like a Justin Fournette I mean Jason Fournette the these players that came in from other teams and combined you know the Indomitian Sues and you know the Barretts and all the players all the different personalities they blend it, and they still find a way to win a championship. It's very commendable. You don't see that on a lot of teams, especially in the National Football League, because the personalities generally rule. But you had a LaShawn McCoy on the bench. I mean, you, you had namesakes, for what it's worth, on this team, and they all contributed to the season's win. That's a great testament to Bruce Arians. And one of the things that most people love about him, especially working with him, is that he allows them to be him themselves. So the coaches, they, he allows them to coach. He doesn't micromanage them. He, he's the one. He's the sort of the overseer, but he doesn't micromanage people and allows them to give the freedom to express themselves, to explore their abilities and see what they can do. And if they need help, they can come to him and approach him and figure it out. But people love working with him because he allows them to be themselves. Lincoln, we appreciate you coming on all year long and talking football with us. And uh, we promise not to bother you until spring football starts. <laughs> Which Guys, isn't that far away. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what is it, a month or so? Anyway. I know, right? <laughs> Enjoy yourself. Be safe. There's Lincoln Kennedy with PKNI. When I come back, Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider. Stay with us. 
Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. DJ PK, it's 97.5 at 1280, The Zone. We are brought to you in part by Jimmy Slowers. Jimmy Flowers reminding you Valentine's Day is Sunday. Flowers make the perfect gift. Jimmy Flowers, a longtime partner with Zone, and they can make it easy. Just visit them at jimmysflowers.com. Remember, Valentine's Day is on Sunday. Jimmy Flowers at jimmysflowers.com. Time to welcome in Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider. Steve, good morning. Good morning. Steve, jazz fans are a mixed bunch right now. Jazz have won 15 out of 16 games. And there are people who are ready to dream. There are the people who are superstitious, do not, is, do not even want us to speak of it. And I don't know how we cannot speak of it because, you know, it's A, it's radio. If we sit here in silence, that kind of defeats the purpose. And they got the best record in the NBA a third of the way through the season here. What else can you say other than you either have to be a contender. When you have the best record, you're either the favorite or you're a contender. Realistically, the Lakers are the defending champs. They're a game back. They're the favorite. The Jazz are at least a contender. In your mind, what's the number one reason they're a legit contender? Their depth, I think, more, more than anything. I think they, and I mean, I, I think I just think their depth and the consistency by which they've played. Um, Mitchell, Bogdanovich, Conley, Clarkson, uh, Neil. I mean, game in and game out, there hasn't been the real highs and lows like you get in a season, and. and I mean, this this whole thing with games being postponed and canceled and the COVID and and for whatever reason, some organizations have struggled more with that than others. Others struggle with injuries, but the Jazz have been kind of free of injury. They've had a few COVID issues, but nothing real dramatic. And they've just been consistent in, in playing together and doing what they've always done. I think the other thing that is, is unique to this season is there's really no home court advantage. And so what happens is this. You take a more experienced, mature team that, uh, you know, could go on the road and have a really difficult time at different places that they're, you know, teams that maybe they don't match up well with. They're able to win these games on the road uh, because there isn't that influence of a home court advantage like there has been in the past. And with a mature group, a group that's been together, that's unselfish, they play selfless basketball, uh, I think they're going to flourish in, in, in this kind of situation and setup. And I think that uh, it's much like uh, they had the bubble. You know, they they played well. They didn't play well enough, but this year they're playing better than they've ever played. And, and, and night in and night out, you can pretty much count on Mitchell Bogdanovich, Conley, Clarkson. You know, you're, you're getting 10, 15, 20, what the different averages that they are, but they've been real consistent. So I think that's why you look at this team as a contender, but I, I still believe that the real X factor in this whole thing, and which will have an impact on uh, really, I think who ends up being the NBA champion is number one, uh, COVID. And I think that how that plays out, and if we're going to go back to the bubble, you know, what that's going to look like. And then the teams that have to deal with protocol, the, the, the protocol, you're losing guys, two and three guys a week, and you don't have that continuity. 
you can put yourself in a hole so that, uh, you know, maybe all of a sudden a first-round matchup is not one you want. So I think there are things that are impacting it. But the thing for me, most of all, is that they've just been consistent and mature. They're a veteran group. They're well-coached. And, uh, and they're playing with a lot of confidence. How much has the three-point shot become an equalizer now? Uh, you know, I mean, it is, it's, it is the game. I mean, it's, it's one of those things. And, you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, being in professional arenas when I was younger and, and shooting that thing. And, it se- you know, it, it, it seemed like a pretty long way, 25, 26 feet, whatever it was. And, uh, you know, I never thought that it would, when it first came in, I knew that it would impact the game, especially in the college game at, you know, 18 or 19 feet. But uh, it's had a huge impact. And, and what happens is that you can spread the floor with shooters. It makes it so much harder to defend people. I mean, it's kind of like you can't leave this guy. You know, who are you going to help on? And hence, you know, we don't see a lot of low post players in, in, in the league. There just aren't. And the, the game is driven by the three-point ball and good defense and transition baskets and scoring. I mean, the scores have been unbelievable. A lot of games in the 130s, 140s throughout the NBA. Um, but, yeah, it's that, that's, that is the most significant part of the game today that has, has changed professional basketball. I mean, I, I didn't think that it would take off like it is, but you know, now everybody shoots the three. And, uh, and, and you know what? The Jazz got guys that can do it. I mean, Gobert's not really a three-point shooter, but everybody around him is, and, and he knows his role. He, you know, he doesn't need – I mean, when, he, when Gobert gets 20 and 20 and has big nights like that, they're, they're nearly unstoppable. But, I mean, they, they can win without Gobert getting 20 points. Uh, they don't need that inside. Four opens, and uh, guys are playing with a lot of confidence. So I think the thing that's happened with the Jazz that has been encouraging here is not only have they won, but they've lost Joe Ingles for a couple of games, and they kept winning. They lost Donovan Mitchell for a couple of games, and they won them both. Now Mike Conley's out, and they win in Indiana, and they don't shoot the three well, but they defend well. They only give up 95 points, and they get 17 offensive rebounds and 24 points off of them. So even though they're missing a guy and they're playing their third game in four days and they're not shooting the three well, they still beat a 500 team on the road. Granted, watered down road, as you point out. But that kind of stuff is encouraging because it's one thing to win when everything goes right. You could probably go back to some of your teams and the most satisfying wins are winning when everything doesn't go right. Yeah, there's, there's no question about that. And I think, and, and, the mo- and the thing is, those are the types of wins that give you the most confidence and the expectation level. I mean, when obviously every team has great coaches, coaching staffs. But when teams are kind of more player-led and they have that kind of mindset that, you know, we, we can do this, we can run on the road with or without an individual, and somebody else has to step up, or we individually we've got to be better. And, and you see that with more mature teams. And, uh, you know, there's not – you start looking at their roster, and I, I, didn't, I haven't done the research on it, but they've been together for a while now. You know, and I mean, Connolly being the newest member of that team, but a seasoned veteran. It's not like he's going mean, to struggle at times last year, but he's come in and really, Bogdanovich has really, really shot the ball well. Clarkson could start on any team in the NBA, probably. Uh, and, and then with, with Mitchell and Engel and, and others, O'Neal, 
Uh, and it's it's nice, guys. So you know, I can't remember the, the exact game, but Ingles stepped up in a couple of those ball games where you know he he ended up having eighteen, nineteen points. And when guys can step up, and I think you know, I don't think for Joe Ingle that he feels he goes into a game when they're healthy and full that he has to score twenty points. I mean, he'll take the shots that are there. But when guys are missing and he can do that and step into that role, uh, it, it makes them better. But I, I'm, I, I'll just go back to teams that, in, in the collegiate level, it would be teams that have, you know, a lot of seniors, teams that have guys that have played that uh, practices aren't as long, uh, sell them on the mistakes as often as they are when you have younger players. And I, I watch the NBA. I see a lot of new names, a lot of new guys, two-year you know, two players. Uh, they're, they're in organizations that don't have the chemistry and have the culture that the Jazz have. And uh, it's it's harder to it's harder to beat teams like the Jazz uh, if you don't have those things. And and we talk about that stuff all the time. That that it's it's important, you know. Well, that's true. There are five or six teams in the conference right now, or in the, in the league, that could win the championship. You know, we could talk about those who those are. And in pretty much every one of those situations, they have a really really strong culture. They have they have people who know who they are, they know their roles, uh, they understand the system they're in, doesn't mean they can't have off nights. And then there's another collection of five or six teams who can get hot and get it going, but to go through a, a whole series of playoffs and that grind, there, there's only, you know, there's five or six teams that can do that, and and Utah is one of them. And, and to be honest with you, I don't think they've been one, one of those teams. And, and, now, and now I think they are, I think they believe it, I think probably the coaching staff's always felt that, but that's one of the really challenging and important things that a coaching staff can get young people to believe in who they are and, and trust it and, you know, and just be together. And the Jazz seem to be a team that everybody looks around the league, you always hear them talking about, you know, the maturity of this team. Not that they're old, but the maturity of this team and there's, they're, the way they play, how unselfish they are and the fact that they're a really good shooting team. And as you mentioned earlier, David, they're, they're garden people. They're garden people and when they're not shooting well. And that's the perfect formula for winning on the road when you can guard and rebound and get to the free throw line. So uh, they're doing all the things they got to do. But you're right. I mean, you, you look at the Lakers, you look at the Clippers in their own division. The, those are teams that are going to have to be reckoned with. But it, I've never seen – after 25 so games <laughs> to see the difference from one year to the next, you know, where you know, you're looking at Miami, a team that was in the bubble in the finals and, you know, at the bottom of the standings or to, you know, I, I wasn't sure I was seeing Philadelphia at the top. Milwaukee's back though. Brooklyn, we expect to be there. Boston, uh, you know, those are probably the four teams. I mean, Boston's been playing without Brown for, for a while now. And uh, they're, they're still hanging in there. But there's, like I said, there's a collection of six or seven teams. Denver seems to be playing better. But, again, they all kind of have – a lot of them just don't have the depth that uh, – or, or, may, or maybe that additional, that third superstar that helps them get over the top. So, But I, I, the Jazz, they're, they're here. I mean, I start looking who they're playing next week. And, uh, I mean, they're going to – they're, they're going to come home and probably be 23-5. and five. I mean, I, they've got a chance to win every game they play this week. I mean, they could lose one, but they're in a really good position to separate themselves, and not so much maybe from the Lakers and the Clippers, but from everybody else in the league. 
How much do you think we've discovered a little bit of a blueprint going forward, maybe even down to the colleges, surround a great defensive player? Now, it's hard to get that great defensive player of the caliber of Gobert. I understand that. But maybe go with the philosophy of defense at the rim and then sort of build out from there and make sure that virtually at all times you've got four three-point shooters out on the floor and maybe you lack a little bit of tremendous high-level elite athleticism, but you've got highly skilled guys who can dribble, pass, and shoot combined with that defensive anchor in the middle. No, no, I really like that thought. And I, and I think that the and when I talk about um, teams that their culture or the maturity of a team, it's, it's when they, they understand what a good shot is and what a good shot isn't. You know, and, and certainly with the shot clock that's going very quickly, um, I, I think that the one offensive piece that I noticed is that this is a team that it, it's, it's add one and another. You know, I mean, it, it, they're going to make the extra pass because they have confidence in each other. And that instills confidence in your teammates. When you are on a team, uh, a veteran team that understands this game, and you can make that extra pass and make one more and trust that that guy, and the expectation is, hey, man, you shoot it. And there isn't anything like, you know, Donovan Mitchell's a guy that takes all the big shots. Well, that may happen just kind of organically through the course of a game, but at the end of the day, I don't think that's the mindset of this team. They all believe that they can. And and, and your your comments on, you know, four, four out, shooting the three, uh, running back cutting action, running Princeton stuff. You know, it's, it's incredible how people pick up in this league. It's kind of a copycat league to certain degrees. I mean, there's only so many things you can do. But spreading the floor, and, and there isn't a team out there that isn't running some Princeton principles with back cuts and uh, curl cuts over the top and back to the ball and things that uh, that were made famous uh, at Princeton in the Ivy League. If those concepts have become part of the four out, where you spread the floor, you get backdoor cuts, you get layups, you get threes. It's hard to guard, and and when you have and, and so the post guy isn't that important in that sense. I mean, he can, he can and for for Gobert. I mean, he can set ball screens. Uh, he can dive. He can have ball. He can have uh, back screens for him dive into the basket. But spreading that floor, opening that floor allows. Extra cuts, better spacing, and uh, taking advantage of, of, of a team that can really shoot the three. You start playing like that, and I'll tell you what, it, it's hard to – when you get down to a team like that, 8, 10, 12 points, it's really hard to come back because they, it, to just get – if you have to go, really go out and stretch your defense to 27, 28 feet, well, they already have a system in place – that's exactly how they want you to play them. So now all of a sudden you dribble at a guy, boom, go to catch, back door, the floor's wide open. And, you know, obviously the help rules in, in, the, in the NBA are different than they are in college. And so, you know, you have to be something, you have to be within five or six feet of your man. The floor just opens up when you have four perimeter players and you run good stuff. You know, I, I watch some ugly basketball in the NBA at times where the ball's in one guy's hand and, and everybody stands, they don't move, <laughs> and then they just penetrate, okay? We, we've all seen that. Yeah. It's like, did you did you have practice this week? <laughs> I mean, tell me you got somebody that's working with you on offensive principles. But you that's – I mean, we see teams do this, and to a degree it works, but at the end of the day, typically those aren't teams winning championships. 
You know, Steve, this whole thought about uh, shooting threes and that's the way the game is going, I wonder how much this is getting. Some of it probably is just kids screwing around do it naturally, but how much coaches are getting them into these kind of workouts when they're really young because it, you can't just be a catch-and-shoot guy. You know, can you shoot it off the dribble? Can you shoot it going left? Can you shoot it going right? And to the degree they see Steph Curry and just go out and mimic him, they're, get, they're getting the work in. But it seems like if you start putting up a lot of shots every day – off the dribble going left, off the dribble going right, catch and shoot. You could it, – it's a skill that I think a lot of kids could add if they just work at it. You know what, I, I have grandchildren right now, an uh, 11-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 13-year-old. And uh, one of them is in Utah and two of them are here. And they're playing IAU teams. And it's interesting to see the really high level of coaching that's taking place. Number one, I know my son Casey, <clears throat> who played for me and uh, in, in junior college, and, and they got in an accident, they couldn't play. But he, he's coaching these teams. I'm so impressed. I mean, I didn't see this 20 years ago, but I'm so impressed with the the, the material that's there. I mean, I, I, I look at my my son Casey, who's on YouTube and there, there's so much teaching and training and different things that you can learn and pick up. And you go and watch 10, 11, 12 year olds. I mean, they're doing things with the ball that we weren't teaching until players got into high school or college. They're growing up with this mindset. They're watching these players play. How, you know, you, when you're teaching a 10 year old to uh, basically create separation you know, with a jab, with a dribble, with uh, a back dribble, and those kinds of things, players are going to get better. So the, the young people that are watching this game that are 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, they're, you know, I think AAU gets a, a kind of a bad rap it's to some degree. I mean, there, there is a lot of good things happening in a lot of outstanding AAU programs. I and mean, you go and watch those, and I've had a chance just to kind of watch those from a different perspective as a grandfather. Uh, it's amazing some really, really good teachings going on. And that's going to carry over that by the time these kids are 14, 15, or 16, they know how to create space. They know where the spots on the floor they want to shoot. And I, I tell my grandsons all the time, I said, you do not have to be a great shooter from six spots on the floor. I said, I, I think it was Jerry West said that, uh, you know, whatever he did, he got to two spots on the floor. The majority of his shots I, were always the intention was to get to one or two spots on the floor where he had complete confidence in. And I've always kind of believed that as a player myself. When I played, I knew the, the, the right wing and the you know, left baseline corner. I knew where I felt comfortable shooting. You know, these younger coaches, they're, they're talking to kids about these things. That's, that's kind of next-level coaching. I mean, I, I know all the things that are wrong with AAU basketball and everything that goes with that. But the teaching is getting better and, and because there's so much on uh, the Internet. And, and then you go into towns and communities where they've got some wonderful young coaches in towns across the country who are teaching kids how to create space and do things. And everything's being garnered right now throughout the country to help young people play on the perimeter. And it doesn't matter if they're the tallest kid in the team, but to help them play on the perimeter, figure out ways that they can get into their best shot uh, by the use of the, of the ball, by the use of the pass. And so it's kind of fun to watch younger kids. So that, that the NBA is having a great influence. And it's, it's, it's falling down to college as well. 
you see a way more spread out, uh, focus on the dribble, focus on the pass, ball movement, tons of ball screens. But it used to be, you know, it was just a high ball screen, come off at roll, and, uh, you know, if they switched, you, you could – he could you could come back, pack to him and, and, and uh, re-screen. But now – now it's a ball screen, take it deep, come at a guy as if it were a Princeton cut, dribble right at him, he back cuts. I mean, there's four or five things incorporated into offense today that I really, really like, that I, I would love to be coaching at this time. And we, we used the three ball, and I ran a lot of quick hitters, and a lot of sets for, for my teams, whereas a lot of people just let them play and flow. You know, everybody had a different philosophy. But I'm really impressed with the teaching, and the NBA has had a huge influence on that especially with young people. So, yeah, I, I think that players are going to be way more prepared to play this way. And, uh, and unless they give a two-handed, behind-the-head dunk or trick shots inside, I think, and it's worth four points, I think that uh, the three ball is going to continue to be uh, the main course for the NBA for a long time. There's Steve Cleveland, our basketball insider. When we come back, Mark Pope, BYU basketball coach, after the Cougars give Gonzaga their closest game in conference play. Stay with us. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo. Wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280, The Zone. BYU loses 82-71 to Gonzaga at home. That is the closest game Gonzaga has played in the West Coast Conference this year. And it's the tied for the second closest game they've played all season. They've only had one game that was decided by double digits. They're just destroying people. And BYU, I know they're going to look back at the box score and at the film and think about this game, think all the things that they could have done different because they got off to a terrible start. You know, they were down double digits in the opening minutes of the game. It just, shoom. <laughs> it was, and basically traded hoops from there. And... You also have to look at the 19 turnovers. That's way too many. And BYU has several big guys who have helped the team at different times this year, but none of the three of them really made any impact uh, on on this game. Uh, just none of them. I mean, the three big guys combined 2.7 rebounds and an assist. You know, that, that would be a small line for any of these guys. But... Uh, you know, Harms was Harms was a non-factor, and Colby Lee was kind of a non-factor, and Harward didn't give him much. And I'm sure all three of those guys are thinking, I I could have I could have done better than that. But Gonzaga's got good bigs, and they take you out of games, and, and they did it to three guys at the same time. And and with all those mistakes, all those things that you know they'd like to go back and change, and guys would like to change whatever pass they threw and got picked off and taken the other way. 11 points. That's about as close as anyone's been getting to Gonzaga. So, for BYU, I don't think that's going to hurt them as far as their seeding in the tournament field. I don't think I don't think the committee's going to hold that against them. All right, let's listen to head coach Mark Pope. Here he is after the game. Really proud of our guys. Uh, you know, we had some things that we didn't do well and some areas of the game where we struggled, but uh, with the exception of a stretch of four or five minutes, I thought the guys fought really hard and and uh, tried to compete and... and um, 
you know, we'll continue to, to work hard and, and get better. And that's, that's the agenda at hand. Great. Uh, we'll go with Darnell Dixon, Mitch Harper, and then Matthew Coles with AP. Mark, what is it that Gonzaga does that gets you guys off your game at the start, I guess, and then some of the other parts of the game where you can't get done what you want to get done? What is it they're doing that, that turns that for you? Well, they, uh, you know, they're long in the backcourt and they kind of jump in passing lanes and they have really good makeability in their backcourt. Um, they started small today, which surprised us a little bit. Um, I don't know if they've started that way the whole season. Uh, I'd have to go back and check, but today they started small and uh, they, they came out uh, playing with tremendous pace and um, they're deceptively physical. Um, you know, they kind of took it to us again in the, in the terms of the physicality of the game and their, their bigs do that in a, in a, in a surprising way, but they do it consistently every single night and their guards are really, really physical and they're really long. And so again, tonight it took us a minute, you know, we, we, um, you know, we, we kind of talked about the start. We mapped out the start. We talked about how we wanted to do it, um, exactly what we're doing. We just couldn't execute it. Um, and that's a credit to Gonzaga and, and it's uh, something we need to uh, continue to fix. Mark, last time, uh, when you face these guys in the kennel, you, you know, I kind of came away that, uh, weren't thrilled with just the, what you guys put out on, on the court. I mean, as far as what you did tonight, uh, were you pleased? Do you feel like your team got better after tonight's performance facing the top team in the country? Well, there was, there was more parts of the game that made some sense. Uh, we had a couple stretches where, you know, uh, the, the start of the game obviously was tricky for us. And uh, there was a stretch, uh, stretch, you know, mid second half where it got to almost 20 or got to 21 and where we just, you know, there was some, some dysfunction out there. There was, uh, you know, we, we missed some defensive assignments. They were, you know, they were challenging for us in ball screen and rolls. I felt like we were a little bit, uh, too far off the DA line and that's not us. So there were moments where I was really surprised that I was just like, this is not how we function. But I, I felt like for 30 minutes of the game, we, we at least, um, were recognizable to ourselves and, um, you know, the game's 40 minutes. So we need to do that better, but we will, we'll keep getting better and we'll figure some things out and we'll keep growing and, and uh, we'll get there. What do they do especially well to turn you guys over, especially like uh, Alex talked about, you know, the first of the game was, was not good, but then it, there was a stretch in the second half where it was kind of devastating. Yeah. You know, two things. I thought in the beginning of the second half, it was just, it was just hard for us. To, we just were in a foul situation. You know, they doubled us up from the free throw line and, and uh, we, they got in the bonus really early in the second half. And I thought that was uh, troublesome for us, um, not just for, you know, not just because of fouls and free throws, but also because of rotation issues. Now we're, you know, seven guys because of foul issues and that's challenging for us. And then, um, you know, their length was problematic for us. Um, you know, there are times uh, in this game where we're actually really good and aggressive. We want to be really aggressive in transition. And so our pass heads were actually really good. And then the ball just died. Uh, you know, we just want to stop and probe on the wing, and that's not what we do ever. Um, 
And so I was a little disappointed with the pass after, after the pass ahead. That was a little bit of a problem for us tonight. Um, you know, I was disappointed with us physically in the post, you know, they just, um, you know, they kind of had their way with us in the post offensively. Uh, Timmy did, and he's obviously an elite, elite player. And, and we were struggling to just get a, a post catch within 14 feet. And, um, and, and, you know, we need to be, we need to be way more physical in our front line. We have to figure that out. That's a, that's a, that's a place we go that we trust that saves us, that can steady us. And it was not an answer for us tonight. And that's problematic. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know, when, when you can't go there and, and, and you're, you're kind of, you don't have that space to kind of occupy, uh, it also makes it more difficult. And so, you, you know, you, you turn the ball over 19 times against Gonzaga, the game's going to be really hard. It just is. And, and that's what we did tonight. Jake and then Norma. Yeah, coach, you and your players have talked in the past about how important it is when you guys lose a game to get back out there and play once again. You guys currently don't have games scheduled until next week. Do you have any idea if you guys will have a game this week or are you guys going to have a bye this weekend ahead of Pacific next Thursday? Yeah, so we um <laughs> You know, we've kind of put a, uh, put some legwork into trying to find a game, um, but I haven't I haven't uh, you know dove in head first yet because we we were kind of we didn't want to get ahead of ourselves. So we'll spend some time tonight as a staff, kind of mapping it out, and and then hit the phones hard in the morning and see if we can find um, something that works for us right now. It's it's a uh, you know, this is super unprecedented and, and down now in the stretch run of this season, it's actually, um, you know, finding games and finding the right games and finding the games at the right time for your team is super important right now. And so um, we'll jump on that and I'm not sure where we're going to end up. Hopefully we can find uh, a game that fits us really, really well. Kind of off. You guys, if you guys have any, uh, you guys any getting, getting good contacts, Good power five top 20 teams. You got any dirt on anybody out there that can force them to jump in this thing? We'll, we'll travel. So I'm brushed out of that coach, but um, off topic from tonight. As Norma, a, don't, don't, don't try and pretend like you don't have some pull. No, nobody knows me. Nobody cares about me. It's fine. It's cool. I'm no one, but as an RGB native, I did want to get uh, your thoughts on the sudden passing of coach Hill and just, it, it, it surprises all pretty much. What, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's just devastating. And I, I just feel for Lou's family and his team. Um, you know, I got to know him really well. We, we, you know, we, we, we were good friends actually before he even got the job at Rio Grande Valley. And then, and then of course we were competing against each other in the WAC. And, um, I love him. He's one of the, he's, he's just a special, he's, he was just a special human being with a giant heart and, um, a ton of love for the game and brought so much joy. And he was a good friend uh, to everybody in the game of basketball. And, you know, I just, it just is almost beyond imagination that he coaches a game and, and then, you know, within 24 hours, he's, he's passed. It's just, is um, it's awful. And I, 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 like I said, 
I feel I feel so sad for his family. Um, I feel so sad for uh, Rio Grande Valley and, and all of college basketball because we lost a great one. Like we lost a great, great human being. All right, let's take a last question from Sean Walker. Yeah, Coach, I, I think you touched on this a little bit, but did you see tonight kind of some of those flashes or glimpses against obviously the best team that you you can play or have played this year? Did you see kind of some of those glimpses of, of what you've talked about wanting to see um, out of this team and kind of where you guys can can go? Because, I mean, like you said, it did feel like there were – probably a good 20, 25 minutes there where you played really, really good basketball. Yeah. I mean, you say that it's just like a dagger to my heart, man, that we're talking about playing good basketball 20, 25 minutes, but I understand what you're saying and you're right. It's just, it's hard to swallow. Um, uh, Yeah. Listen, I thought, um, I thought our driving lines were outstanding. Uh, I thought uh, our high ball screen actions were really, really good, whether it was weak UCLA or horns twist or, you know, a, 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 you know, a, a pitch second side drag or uh, drags in transition were good for us. I thought Alex did an unbelievable job kind of being forceful. I thought, I thought Spence from the wing did a nice job kind of managing some ball screen action. And I thought, our physicality on the offensive end in terms of gaining uh, driving lines and buying space and time was just, um, it was just light years ahead of where we were when we played at the Zags for sure. Um, And so I I really feel positive about that. I felt like we, we had a lot more activity in transition. I thought we had a lot lot more force in transition, even if our decision-making wasn't great. And even if the outcome wasn't great. So I was, I was really pleased with that. Um, I was, I felt like our ball screen defense kind of fell to pieces a little bit at times. I was a little bit discouraged with that. And I was, I was really discouraged with our ineffectiveness kind of playing out of the post and our physicality on the glass. So um, I, I thought we saw some flashes of positivity and some things where we're just like, man, we're not even close and, uh, or we weren't close tonight. Um, and that's what great teams do to you. They, they, um, you know, they, they challenge kind of every nook and cranny of who you are and what you do. And so it's, um, it's a good marker for us to get better and we have to get better We're you know, we're down to crunch time in the season. We got to get better. Here's BYU basketball coach Mark Pope after the loss to Gonzaga. We'll be back with what is trending all the headlines jazz playing the Celtics tonight. And we'll get to that next. Stay with us.